So if you go to read a textbook, Introduction to International Relations, which we used to train first year students, uh, or any literature, like uh, you know, even advanced study of international relations, uh, uh, you will find that a lot of the material is sourced from European history or American practice. Uh, there is very little uh, about uh, in those textbooks about how uh, other societies or civilizations or states like uh, say India or China, which are much older civilizations than uh, many Western civilizations, uh, how they contributed their ideas, their concepts. So that's basically the, if you talk about the what I call the traditional international relations, uh, TIR said, let's put it. That's what the textbooks draw on. That's what the textbooks present. Global international relations, the GIR, does a much broader job. It doesn't neglect or dismiss uh, the contributions of Western societies or the traditional IR. Uh, but uh, it says that's not enough. That's very narrow, that's very parochial, and that's no longer, um, it's kind of out of date. Welcome everyone to this new episode of The Next Page, our podcast designed to advance the conversation on multilateralism. Today we have with us through video link, Professor Amitav Acharya, who has written, studied and lectured extensively on international relations, both the history and the development and evolution of international relations. And we're going to be talking with him about how IR international relation is evolving, what we can look at in terms of its future at this crucial moment where we all agree multilateralism is in urgent need of an upgrade. Professor Acharya, welcome to our podcast. Thank you for taking the time. Let me just say that you are UNESCO Chair of Transnational Challenges and Governance and Distinguished Professor at the School of International Service, American University in Washington, D.C., from which you you are joining us today. And previously, you were a professor at York University, Toronto, and the University of Bristol in the UK. You also are honorary professor at Rhodes University, South Africa, and guest professor at Nankai University in China. Welcome. Thank you so very much, Professor. Why don't you introduce yourself to our audience so they get to know you a little bit better? Thank you. Thank you very much for inviting me to this uh, podcast. Um, so you already introduced me. Uh, so I am uh, based in Washington, although I'm speaking from my home rather than from my office in the university. So um, I did also have other um, experiences as a professor or t in teaching and research. Uh, aside from uh, the positions that you uh, mentioned, I'm actually a professor of practice uh, of uh, transnational governance at the SOAS University uh, at the moment. I also taught in Singapore. Uh, my early career was actually at the National University of Singapore and then a little later at the Nanyang Technological University. And uh, I have uh, been a visiting professor at uh, Oxford University, at uh, Harvard University, Kennedy School of Government, and uh, in uh, Richumakan University in Japan, and uh, Chulalongkorn University in, in Thailand, among others. So I'd like to so stress that I was born in India. I, were, I did my doctoral studies, uh, spent a bit of my youth in Australia, and uh, then uh, worked in uh, Canada, Singapore, Britain, and now the United States. Well, that's, a, that's a already an impressive career. 
Professor Acharya, let's start, let's begin by setting the scene. In several of your articles and books, you argue quite strongly that the peculiar conditions upon which IR was built and developed in the early stages, and in which saw a dominance of Western values and Western history in international relations, that peculiar moment is coming to an end. And therefore, IR needs to adjust and evolve and embrace additional modernized cultures, to use your terminology. So let's set the scene. Why do we need to do this? Why do we need to broaden the analysis and the way we look at IR today? So uh, let me start by saying that uh, we are talking here about uh, two very closely related but slightly distinctive um, sort of uh, things here. One is international relations or IR as a discipline, as a field of study uh, that, uh, you know, people, especially those who are in diplomacy uh, and international relations fields, they have to uh, train themselves in, not all of them, but many of them. And then there is the international relations in practice. Uh, the practitioners who may not be studying international relations in theory, but still have to deal with uh, the substance of uh, the field on a daily basis. So my work has been uh, primarily directed towards uh, the field because I am a professor of international relations, but I also have always an eye and ear for what happens in the field. Uh, so a lot of my work is also policy relevant, not all of it. So I am very conscious of the fact, and this is the reason why I got into this uh, field and also the debate about uh, broadening and redefining IR, uh, is that a lot of what we use as our textbooks uh, in training diplomats or training anybody who wants to have a, a career in international relations, there could be NGOs, there could be uh, people who, in the media, um, they, they, they get a training that is very Eurocentric, that sort of thinks of the beginning of international relations as having started from Europe and then kind of uh, developed in the United States. So international relations is sometimes called uh, the American social science uh, because it was born in Europe, born in the UK, and raised in the U.S. Now, what happens to the rest of the world? The rest of the world gets a very small space and sometimes even marginalized and, and not only neglected, but marginalized. In a way, that is no longer sustainable because um, the world is changing. Uh, you know, we international relations, uh, if you want to put a date on it, uh, was born as a field uh, in 1919 when the first chair of what is called, what was called chair of international politics, uh, was called Woodrow Wilson chair of international politics, was uh, established at uh, what was the University of Wales in Aberystwyth, uh, now called Aberystwyth University. Uh, so that's just over 100 years old. But the field of international, the subject matter of international relations was not born 100 years ago. You know, what we study, like diplomacy, uh, cooperation, peace, uh, negotiations, uh, moral uh, ideas and norms, uh, freedom of uh, navigation, uh, those things were not invented 100 years ago. They were invented hundreds and hundreds of years ago, and they were not invented only in Europe. Far from it. Many of the key ideas were actually came out of the Middle East, um, like the idea of empire, the idea of the first peace treaty uh, between uh, the Hittites and the Egyptians, the Treaty of Cadiz. There is so much history that, that can tell you that the subject of international relations, the themes of international relations was not born in one region or certainly not in one country. Um, they predated even the creation of the United States, or the rise of the West. So my main concern has been to try to 
reclaim that broader terrain and uh, try to uh, develop an approach, which I call global international relations, that looks at the voices and experiences and the histories of the entire humankind and not just the uh, modern Europe or the United States. That's what uh, has been driving uh, my uh, my thinking and my my research to make international relations relevant to the 21st century at a time when we are not living in the era of European dominance. Uh, although the West remains very very important, we're not uh, dismissing their contribution. Uh, but at the same time, there's so much, so many other uh, places, other. Uh, civilizations, other uh, nations that have contributed to what diplomats, practitioners uh, have to know and what academics have to uh, teach and uh, develop through the research, that that has to be brought front and center to make this subject of international relations relevant for the 21st century. And I hope we will have time during this episode of the podcast to go deeper into into your knowledge of how this different part of the world contributed what to what amounts today to uh, uh, international international relations. But before we go there, let's stay a little bit longer on the theoretical part. You You just mentioned the term uh, global international relations. So what does it mean for our practitioners, global international relations versus international relations? Could you tell us more? Yeah. So um, let's start by talking about textbooks. So if you go to read a textbook, Introduction to International Relations, which we used to train first-year students, uh, or any literature, like uh, you know, even advanced study of international relations, you will find that a lot of the material is sourced from European history or American practice. Uh, there is very little in those textbooks about how uh, other societies or civilizations or states like, uh, say, India or China, which are much older civilizations than many Western civilizations, uh, how they contributed their ideas, their concepts. So that's basically, the. if you talk about the what I call the traditional international relations, uh, TIR, said, let's put it. That's what the textbooks draw on. That's what the textbooks present. Global international relations, the GIR, does a much broader job. It doesn't neglect or dismiss uh, the contributions of Western societies or the traditional IR. Uh, but uh, it says that's not enough. That's very narrow. That's very parochial. And that's no longer. Um, it's kind of out of date. It's past its user by date. So global international relations broadens the field. It goes back in history and also in practice because there are a lot of things happening even today in Africa, in Latin America, in Middle East, in uh, uh, in in the Islamic world, in, uh, in, in Asia, in China, India, that are actually not even reflected in our textbooks, uh, even though they deal with modern concepts and modern events. So, so global international relations goes back in history, but also draws from contemporary uh, thinking and practices in, uh, say, the non-Western world, and then brings them into the uh, sort of a syllabi, the research outputs, and the conversations, the debates of uh, international relations. So it's uh, broader, uh, much broader. It's attentive to both the West and the rest. And uh, it sometimes, uh, you know, focuses on uh, the what you call the neglected and marginalized uh, contributions and voices from the non-West, even in a self-conscious way, uh, that so that people people know so much about the West and the Western history. Uh, people know so much about Greek and Roman history, but how many uh, mainstream people, especially in the universities uh, in the in the West, for example, when they teach international relations, 
look at Chinese history or Indian history or Islamic history. So global internationalism sort of fills that gap. So therefore, it sort of uh, extends traditional international relations uh, without uh, dumping it and rebooting the uh, sort of our knowledge completely. I said, these other knowledge is out there. And sometimes it's actually far more important. It can actually help us to make sense of even the traditional international relations. And I wonder if we go from this theoretical um, perspective to a more practice perspective, uh, one concept that I came across in your books and articles was this concept of deep pluralism to sort of describe the kind of transformation that is going on right now in in the practice of of multilateralism and, and, and international relations. So this almost, you know, dynamic by which the periphery tends to become the new core. And so I wonder if you could share this with our audience, um, yes. clarifying a little bit the meaning of deep pluralism. Yeah. So I'm um, mindful that I'm, I'm speaking to both a practitioner audience and an academic audience. Uh, but I think uh, for practitioners, is, uh, my, what I'm going to say is more relevant to the practitioners. Um, that deep pluralism is kind of a derived from what is called the English School of International Relations. Uh, this is a body of literature originally came out of uh, Britain, but it is fairly global now although it doesn't have the same kind of uh, following as, uh, say, more uh, well-known theories like realism or liberalism um, or or constructivism. But still, it's an important term. So pluralism, of course, uh, means, uh, you know, dictionary meaning. Does it have more voices, more actors, and more uh, sources of uh, information uh, and uh, sources of contribution to international relations? But it also kind of negates the idea that there is one world or a kind of global village. It sort of thinks diversity or, uh, or uh, difference is uh, something not to be afraid of. Uh, it's a fact of life. Uh, so uh, what we need to find out is to find common ground. Now, sometimes uh, in the original formulation of uh, pluralism in the literature and English school, it was seen as something anti or against uh, what is called solidarism. So you have pluralism and solidarism. Solidarism is more cooperative. So solidarism means more cooperation. Pluralism means more autonomy of the actors. So more like sovereignty and uh, uh, more like uh, individualistic approaches to international relations. But I think um, in my work and my own work and my work with Professor Barry Bazan, we don't quite accept that rigid separation. Pluralism can, deep pluralism can mean the world is becoming deeply anarchic, everybody for itself, so to speak. Um, I, I don't think that's the sense here. We basically are trying to say, and certainly that's my understanding and my interpretation, that um, you cannot ignore diversity. Uh, you cannot even uh, condemn diversity. Diversity is not only a fact of life, but it may be a good thing uh, because uh, this idea that we are all becoming a global village, however idealistic uh, it may sound, however, uh, you know, universalistic and nice it may sound, it's not really going to happen in practice. But that doesn't mean we cannot have cooperation. Uh, so what we need to do uh, is to find ways to reconcile this diversity, accept and acknowledge diversity, but try to manage, if not overcome it, to create cooperation and multilateralism. So this also goes back to kind of what it, uh, what is called universalism. Universalism is a enlightenment term uh, associated with uh, like Western thinkers like Immanuel Kant. 
But sometimes universalism in the Western sense means one size fits all. Everybody uh, thinks like this. Everybody acts like this uh, in, in a certain way. And uh, if you don't, uh, there's a universal standard everybody must aspire to. Once it was called the standard of civilization. So the idea of uh, what is rational, what is uh, active. Uh, there is a standard that was set in Europe, and the rest of the world has to aspire to it. Otherwise, you are not uh, civilized. Now, that is no longer acceptable, and that's never been true anyway. What global IR tries to do is to overcome that sense of sort of pluralism for its own sake and say that, you know, we are different. Uh, humankind um, have different voices, different experiences. That doesn't mean we are all humans after all. Uh, so we also try to find similar solutions uh, to similar problems. So this unity in diversity is actually not a theoretical proposition. It's actually what uh, people try to do, and especially if they want to try to avoid conflict. So the idea of uh, using deep pluralism is to make people conscious that pluralism doesn't necessarily mean uh, everyone for himself or herself, but uh, acknowledging that we are different, but we are also similar, and we should uh, manage the diversity. Uh, so, 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 and it can be managed. So global IR, in some ways, is a way of uh, acknowledging diversity, but also trying to overcome diversity. How do we fit into this perspective the phenomenon of colonialism and the traces that post-colonialism and the resentment that goes with it has left in, in international relations all the way to the present day. In some of your articles, this is discussed, and I would like for you to tell a little bit about the interlink between the concept of global ARs, the pluralism, and post-colonialism, because I think it's very important. So um, colonialism, of course, is a very powerful force um, because uh, it affected most of the globe. There are very few uh, territories, uh, segments of uh, the world as we know today, which was not affected by colonialism. And there were more people lived under colonial rule in the 19th and early 20th century than they lived in the colonial uh, the states that colonized the rest of the world. So colonialism is a fact of life. It's a very large fact of life and of international relations. So how do we deal with that in international relations? Some of the early literature on international relations theory basically neglected colonialism. So they basically uh, argued, I mean, that's, I'm giving you a general sense, that the current international system that we have uh, is kind of based and originated in Europe and uh, developed in, in the United States. And, uh, you know, and all the concepts and categories uh, that came from the European state system, like balance of power or cooperation among great powers uh, to uh, norms and ideas, they all uh, basically were extrapolated from this uh, Western uh, origins to the global scale. But it neglected uh, the not only the voices of the colonized people, but also the dark side of colonialism. Uh, again, you can go back and take a look at uh, the, some of the early literature on international relations, textbooks, and uh, writings. Very few of them really mention colonialism. Um, so it's almost it didn't exist. That has changed. And uh, the, you know, there's a body of scholarship, a growing body of scholarship that looks at uh, uh, we can call it post-colonial or decolonial scholarship that uh, really uh, 
gives a lot of focus to this uh, colonial uh, legacy and heritage of international relations. Uh, but it's not enough. It hasn't gone, because it hasn't really gone deep into, it has not transformed the discipline of international relations. So when you uh, study international relations in the colleges and universities, they would may have a week of uh, stuff on colonialism or post-colonialism, uh, post-colonial theories of IR, for example. But most of it is about the traditional uh, international relations, uh, very Eurocentric, Americanocentric writings of uh, international relations. So we uh, haven't really come to terms with international relations as a field of study has not come to terms with uh, the effects of colonialism. And uh, it, there's a lot more needs to be done. Well, how do we do it is a matter of debate, but I think uh, generally we need to acknowledge, international relations needs to acknowledge that uh, Colonialism is a very big part of the origins and evolution of international relations in, uh, uh, as a field of study. Even when uh, the first share of international relations are being established um, a little over a century ago, there was not much attention given to issues of colonialism, racism, uh, or racist geopolitics at that time. And uh, while some progress have been made uh, in filling those gaps, not enough has been done uh, to acknowledge the colonial and racist origins of international relations. And I'm not saying that because uh, as an activist, but as an academic, I think we are better off knowing more about uh, these uh, issues, uh, about the colonial uh, legacy, the movements of national liberation, independence, and also uh, about the, the, the idea of uh, the contribution of those uh, countries that are under colonial rule to our thinking about international relations. But I think this is a perfect segue, Professor, to go into a little bit of more analytical discussion of exactly those contributions. If we are to rethink the history, concept, and theories of modern IR, as as you say in so many of your articles, then we have to go around the world and sort of reassemble these contributions. So yeah. I would like to guide us through around the world, actually, and enlighten us on these contributions that have been, well, I think the use neglected, uh, the term neglected could be used here uh, in, the, in the historiography of international yeah. relations. So how do we go about rethinking all of that? And what are the contributions of other civilizations, if we want to call them, or other countries, other people? Yeah, so that's a, that's a Excellent question. It's a big question. It's a profound question. Um, and uh, the work on this, identifying the sources uh, and uh, contributions from different parts of the world is not complete. So we, um, we may hear means myself and Professor Barry Bazan uh, of uh, now Emeritus from London School of Economics, we published a book last year called uh, Reimagining International Relations. And we looked at the contributions of uh, three civilizations, uh, India, China, and Islam. Uh, and uh, we looked at what ideas we can get from those civilizations. And before that, uh, we had published another book called The Making of Global International Relations. Both are published by Cambridge University Press. Uh, the first uh, the earlier book, 2019 book, The Making of Global International Relations, uh, was about how the discipline of international relations evolved and how it was enriched by contributions from, again, uh, Asia, like India and China and Japan, uh, from the Islamic world, uh, from Africa, from, from, the, from Latin America, and not just from Europe or United States. So bringing this all together, 
uh, one could find. And again, there is uh, some more work I'm doing. I'm writing a, a much uh, wider book, specifically looking at the history of world order coming from right from the Sumerian civilization to the present. So it gives you all this work uh, will show and has shown and will show uh, when all of this is published that the basic ideas and approaches of international relations have multiple global points of origin. Now, uh, some of these points uh, overlapped. Uh, some of these uh, origins uh, uh, interacted. They were linked. So one civilization learned from another, but some of them are done independently of each other. So to get a sense of uh, the subject of international relations today, we have to really go into the origins for a, from a very historical vantage point. So... Um, the thing is, many of us now, when they talk about the concepts of international relations, they go into Westphalia, a piece of Westphalia's uh, 17th century, and the nation states. So international relations revolves around this Westphalian uh, nation state system. Uh, that's kind of the main concept around which the field develops. But what about uh, systems that are not... Uh, Westphalian, the pre-Westphalian. Uh, you know, the vast majority uh, are the, you know, the most uh, uh, important concepts through the long period of history uh, is not uh, Westphalian sovereign state, uh, based on Westphalian sovereign state. They're actually based on uh, either divine monarchy or empire or uh, like the hierarchical systems like the Chinese tributary system. So if you study international relations, why we we focus on the last 300 years of Westphalia, 400 years, and not the 4,000 years of our history, where we have many different types of uh, political systems and international systems. Now, if you broaden international relations back to four or 5,000 years, you'll see that many different concepts and approaches to order building has come up. And some of them remain relevant. Agreed that today we live in a Westphalian system, but not all systems are anarchic in the sense of the Westphalian system, you know, there are a lot of variations. In some uh, regions, there is a hierarchical system. Some countries uh, still think in terms of a hierarchy rather than equality. Uh, equality may be theoretically good, but in reality, uh, we live in a very hierarchical world. So going back into history, looking at systems uh, that are pre-Westphalian um, actually helps. And you find that, you know, the idea of empire where did it come from? The first empire was not the Roman Empire, far from it. It was, uh, I mean, uh, uh, grew out of uh, Akkad, um, but also developed by Assyrians, Assyrians and then perfected by Persians. The Persian Empire was the first universal empire. And then uh, the Maurya Empire before the Roman Empire came. Or the, so look at the hierarchical systems, look at uh, uh, the origins of uh, empire, which is by far not a dead concept. Uh, you know, the legacy of a, a hierarchy that came of empire lives on. Uh, similarly, I'll give you another dramatic example. Uh, we talk about freedom of seas. Uh, freedom of seas, uh, freedom of oceans is a very important concept for international law. And we often attribute it to Hugo Grotius uh, and, uh, and, and sometimes to the Mediterranean. But uh, to cut a long story short, there is a long tradition of freedom of seas in the Indian Ocean uh, that goes back to a thousand years at least, where anybody could trade in the Indian Ocean uh, by just uh, paying the customs duties. So, uh, in fact, uh, 
if you look at uh, uh, the 15th century Malacca, uh, which is now a place in Malaysia, it was it was one of the major trading trading centers of the Indian Ocean. And Indian Ocean was the largest oceanic trading system in the world. This is before the European discovery or so-called voyage to the Americas that created transatlantic trade, a robust transatlantic trade. And Pacific was never really linked in trade in those days either. So Indian Ocean was the largest trading network in the world for a long time. And that trade there was more or less free uh, because um, in Asian societies, the sea was never considered to be part of your territory. Sea was uh, open uh, to everybody. It's, a, it's like a global common. And and and, uh, and trade was regulated, rule-based, but not enforced by a single empire. There was no single empire covering the entire Indian Ocean, unlike the Roman Empire, which could create free trade by, uh, you know, uh, controlling the entire Mediterranean and uh, turning this into a Roman uh, sea. But Indian Ocean was nobody's sea. But there was trade, there was regulated trade, there were specific uh, rules about how much customs you pay, how many uh, days you can stay in a port. Uh, so so to me, if you want to look at the history of uh, free trade or freedom of the seas, why don't we go back and look at its origins in the Indian Ocean, as opposed to, uh, you know, the Roman Empire, um, which actually created free trade, but the Roman Empire only provided free trade to Roman citizens, meaning that they were conquered territories. In Indian Ocean, there was no no empire uh, in in big way. The big empires of Indian Ocean, like the Mughal Empire, never extended their jurisdiction to the sea. So this is another example of, I'm not saying you neglect the Roman Empire and only focus on Indian Ocean, but why don't we look at different traditions, different sources of origins of a what is a fairly universal concept like freedom of seeds? Uh, so if you go to Africa, you'll find that uh, there are, uh, you know, we think about anti-slavery and uh, human rights uh, ch- charters. We talk about uh, Magna Carta uh, as sources of human rights, uh, sources of humanitarian principles. But uh, in the Empire of Mali, which was one of the largest empires of its time, of its time, uh, the Mali Empire also had something called the Manden Charter, uh, Kurukan Fuga, uh, and they have very, very specific rules about how you treat your slaves, how you treat foreigners, how you uh, property rights, uh, and uh, you know nobody knows about it. Uh, so the Africans actually sometimes are dismissed for not creating big empires, which is not true unlike the Eurasian or European empires. They had empires. They had very well-organized uh, trading systems. They also had principles of uh, uh, humanitarian principles, uh, principles of rights and wrongs that one could draw on. Uh, so if you go back to uh, uh, look at the pre-Columbian uh, Americas, uh, the Iroquois, uh, Iroquois in North America, uh, they had very specific rules about war and peace, uh, which... Uh, uh, really operated in uh, what is the northern uh, New York area and uh, southern Canada, uh, Ontario area of the United States. Uh, those uh, Iroquois nations actually regulated their relations in a way that uh, it is, uh, has been said that their system of uh, maintaining independence but still interacting with each other within a agreed framework was one of the inspirations for the U.S. Constitution. And then you go to the South America, the Inca and the Maya civilizations, uh, they also had very specific and very concrete rules about governance uh, and, uh, you know, justice. Uh, Not all of them uh, may be relevant today, but many of them are very, very relevant. Uh, For example, how do you deal with uh, subjected or conquered people? 
don't uh, like the Incas had the policy of not totally observing uh, or destroying uh, conquered territories, but trying to uh, actually incorporate them in a much more humane way uh, by keeping their rulers, not interfering with their uh, local gods and customs, uh, and uh, and. Uh, giving them autonomy in a way that they become a loyal subjects of the empire rather than sources of rebellion. Uh, so you can learn them from the Inca civilization. Uh, I'm not trying to say all the non-Western civilizations are good. No civilization is uh, perfectly good or perfectly bad. Uh, all civilizations have attraction and ugliness. But what, what we try to do, uh, same true of Western civilization, we try to find out how concepts we take for granted as European, uh, but actually have more universal origins. And the Europeans might have learned uh, from uh, those uh, ideas. Uh, so Islam is another great example. Islam, uh, Islamic civilization at its height actually was a major source of not only scientific knowledge, but also philosophical knowledge. Medicine was important. Uh, art, uh, perspective art, uh, the science of perspective art came out of Islamic civilization. But uh, philosophical doctrines uh, about uh, the creation of the world that was not created only or by God, but uh, by natural forces or it predated um, God's uh, intervention actually is a Greek idea that was uh, developed much further by the Islamic uh, scholars like Ibn Rushd, for example. Uh, so what we see here is uh, there is connectivity in the flow of ideas. And when the Islamic civilization scholars developed, philosophers developed it, they passed it to the Europeans. Um, in, in, in Paris, for example, European professors, who then used those ideas uh, for eternity of the world, that the universe was not created by God in a single act, but actually created by natural forces predating God. That was very helpful to European philosophers uh, in, in challenging the authority of the church and creating a more rational and secular field of uh, uh, understanding. So I'm giving you many examples. From India, you can look at uh, the ideas of King Ashoka, uh, the moral doctrines of King Ashoka that are ruled by uh, morality uh, and uh, compassion rather than by conquest as one of the very few examples where a victorious ruler, emperor, totally gave off the use of force and never fought a war again. Or on the other side, you see the ideas of Cautilia, he was talked about a real politic, how to conquer and create an empire. So the same Indian civilization provides two contrasting ideas, what we today call idealism and realism in international relations. From China, you can look at uh, also similar, both idealistic and realist uh, ideas. Uh, legalists talk about uh, controlling uh, subjects, maintaining discipline, and uh, creating a stronger and powerful state with whatever means it takes. The Confucians, on the other hand, in China, talked about idealism, ruling by virtue rather than by force. So, so when we talk about international relations of realism, idealism, we talk about, uh, you know, as schools of thought, we talk about Immanuel Kant as idealist or Woodrow Wilson as an idealist. Uh, and when it comes to realists, talk about Machiavelli. Now, these are important, but then there were Cautilias before Machiavelli's. And there were Asokas before uh, Kant. Uh, and so if you combine theory and practice, you'll find that many of the ideas we take it, uh, that we consider as universal uh, attribute to Europe only actually have more universal origins. At the same time, some civilizations have given us distinctive ideas uh, that uh, that we should be looking at. The Chinese had a very distinctive uh, way of governing their country, our empire, and uh, some of it is very, very useful today 
uh, in looking at how to create a world order, the Chinese concept of, uh, say, uh, TNC, all under heaven. Um, it has been criticized, but uh, it is actually in some ways uh, much more enlightening than the idea of the Westphalian state when he wants to create cooperation uh, because uh, it talks about the equality of states. China is still the, at the higher level, but the other states are equal in the eyes of China. You know, it's not a perfect solution to today's world, but the China in reality could never be really dominant anyway. But uh, the idea that other states can be more or less equal and they can coexist under the same sky is actually a very refreshingly uh, enlightening idea that one should not completely dismiss just because it's coming from China. Uh, so the, I can give you many, many, many examples. Uh, you know, uh, The first peace treaty I mentioned earlier came from uh, the Treaty of Cadiz between the Hittites and Egyptians. And you look at uh, the Cadiz Treaty, uh, a replica of that is actually in the United Nations headquarters in, in, in New York. Uh, you can find rules and principles that mimic, that predate, that presage contemporary rules of non-intervention, that one should not interfere in each other's affairs, uh, or cooperation, uh, how countries could cooperate, how uh, one should even alliances, how to you help each other if you're attacked. Um, so, again, another example, the great power diplomacy. We talk about the League of Nations, uh, League, or the United Nations P5, uh, and the League of Nations uh, equivalent of that. Uh, the great powers have a special responsibility in managing uh, global peace and cooperation. Well, look at the Amarna system, uh, which was during the New Kingdom of Egypt middle of uh, the second uh, millennium BC. The great powers of the region, including Egypt, but the Hatti, Hittite, and uh, Babylon, Assyria, uh, they cooperated to maintain peace and order through mutual understanding. And the great powers are managing the affairs of the entire Near East uh, uh, or the neighborhood uh, in a way that really predates and presages the concept of Europe. Now, I'm not saying all these things are similar exactly, uh, no, they, they, some things happened thousands of years ago, but I think one should think that, you know, we may have prototypes, we may have a sort of a, a similar, if not the same, uh, institutions and practices of uh, order building, um, organizing what we call international relations from the history of uh, many parts of the world. So the idea is to bring them into our textbooks, make people aware and conscious, but we don't do that. Uh, we just simply think everything started with uh, Europe, Westphalia, and it became uh, global because of uh, colonialism and decolonization. Sorry, it's a long way of answering your question. Uh, I hope, uh, uh, you know, one could make sense of uh, the meaning of uh, what I was saying. And uh, certainly there are many examples of uh, the practices of international relations and the concepts of uh, international relations from multiple civilizations. Professor, this was a fascinating, albeit very rapid journey around the world, around this civilization at different times in our history, in common history of humankind, contributed idea that sometimes we find emerging in other civilization at different times. Whether or not there was migration of ideas, whether or not there was contagion of ideas, this is a fact. And thank you for giving us so many concrete examples, not just the theoretical thought about it. Now, back to the West, we went around the world, we back to the starting point where we began the conversation at the West. Then the question arises, what made it so that the West had such an imprint 
such a dominant effect on the development of IR as we know it now? And second question that comes from that is, how is this global order still basically functioning in this way, whereas one would assume that it's now urgent to transcend this, you know, Western-centric um, perspective yeah. and, and involve more, go in practice, in the practice of global pluralism. How is that possible? So since I gave you a long answer to the previous question, I'll give you a short answer to this question. Um, first, the question is, uh, the first question is, uh, how did international relations come to be so dominated by the West? So there are two quick uh, reasons for it, uh, two reasons I'll put quickly. One is that international relations emerged as a discipline when the West was dominant. So the answer is power. So, you know, you look at uh, 1919, when the first chair of international relations was established, much of the world was still under colonial rule. This is uh, just after World War One. Uh, so effect of World War One were there. The, now many of the empires have been weakened, but it was nothing like World War Two when Europe was really uh, weakened. So World War One was still at a time when we still have a lot of colonies. Uh, Britain was still the largest colonial power. India was still a British colony. So international relations emerges at a time when West is so dominant. And there is a clear link between power and knowledge. So, you know, knowledge uh, in uh, not only international relations, but also generally in social sciences uh, is always associated with who is the most powerful. So it was not a coincidence that the first year of international politics was established in Britain, which was technically the weakening, still kind of the most uh, powerful nation globally. This is before the U.S. replaced Britain. So then what happens after World War II, United States becomes the dominant power in the world, and international relations, the gravitas of the development of IR moves from Britain to the United States. And then the United States had the most institutions, departments, and knowledge production in IR in, uh, in the U.S. itself. So American uh, social science has Professor Stanley Hoffman from Harvard put it, international relations becomes an American social science. So the key point is that there is a nexus between power and knowledge. So West was dominant and West had the ability to put its ideas and practices into the body of literature of IR. The second thing uh, about uh, why IR becomes uh, dominant, dominated by the West, is because uh, it's the reproduction, not the production, but the reproduction of knowledge through our uh, curriculums, our universities. Now, many universities uh, in the West are still very heavily, um, you know, uh, staffed or uh, taught by uh, Western professors, in fact, white professors. And uh, there's not much diversity in the IR department in the top universities around the world, in the West in particular, I'm not talking about around the world. Uh, so that's true of Europe as well as the United States. And and, and it tends to, that sort of same Western-centric knowledge gets uh, reproduced through programs. Like if you want to do a PhD in the United States, in the university, you have to pass a test or exam called comprehensive exam. And if you look at the syllabus of the comprehensive exam, it's the same thing uh, that uh, professors read and passed and they sort of you know, use that to test and uh, pass or fail their own uh, students. So knowledge gets reproduced, uh, and these are very Western-centric traditional IR literature. Uh, so that's the kind of answer to the first question. It's, it's the role of power, but also also the institutional practices uh, in uh, universities and academia uh, in uh, in the West that reproduces Western dominance. Uh, why we need to change that? That's your second question. 
So if uh, we want to change this, uh, and that's what the global IR tries to do, if it's going to make international relations less dominated by the West, why we need to do that? And how we do that. Okay. Why we do that is because the world is changing. The Western dominance is fading. So, you know, if you want to be a, uh, a practitioner, diplomat, and making sense of the world today, you really need to know a lot about countries like uh, China, like India, like uh, Turkey, like uh, South Africa, like Brazil, than you need to know about Europe or uh, Ukraine uh, with due respect. Um, because, uh, you know, uh, a very good example would be the, who are the top 10 economies in the world. China is already number two economy in the world. Uh, Japan is number three. And India has uh, replaced Britain as the number five economy. So among the top five economies in the world, um, aside the you know, United States and, uh, and Germany, uh, two and the other three are sort of non-Western countries. Uh, so the power is the economic power is shifting. Uh, military power is still concentrated in the United States a bit, but um, Asian countries now spend more money than European countries uh, in, on defense. So again, power is shifting there as well. So for a very practical reason, now if, if you're not interested in, um, in um, uh, anything else, but uh, just to know what is going on and you want to train yourself, train your students in uh, understanding the change in the world that is happening, you need to know more about non-Western countries, their ideas, their uh, contributions. Uh, so it is really in your interest, in the interest of the Western countries to know about this. The other thing is, of course, uh, we can find better solutions to the problems. So there are so many ideas and uh, contributions out there uh, that if you can actually use them productively, uh, you can actually have better results. So for example, if you say human rights came out of Europe, uh, and everybody else will follow that. Uh, now, you're always immediately going to antagonize uh, a lot of non-Europeans or non-Westerners. But if you say human rights have origins, which is factually true, uh, because it depends on how you define human rights. Human rights, even as property rights, have origins in multiple civilizations. It came from uh, in Asia as much as Africa. Uh, then you are going to shame them into, uh, you know, in a sense that, oh, you don't, you don't violate human rights because the, you were part of its creation, it's part of its heritage. So it's much more meaningful tactically uh, uh, as a strategy of operationalization than just, uh, you know, talking about human rights or anything else coming from Europe and having everybody should, uh, uh, expecting everybody to follow it. So we need to do that. How we do this is, again, I think to me, education is absolutely key. I'm a, I'm a UNESCO chair in transnational challenges and governance, and UNESCO's mission is education. And uh, and I think we need to look at the curriculums. We need to look at how the subject of diplomacy, international relations, and all related fields, even history and social sciences in general, are taught. We need to uh, revise curriculums and revise the way things are uh, taught, the materials that we use to teach uh, students. And that that's a much more difficult thing uh, because uh, it takes a lot of effort. Uh, again, people go for the EGUA, current professors go for the EGUA. They kind of find it easy to draw on the same literature and reproduce it rather than really, uh, you know, write something uh, completely new or uh, teach something completely new. But we still need to create a movement, create, uh, create a consciousness uh, that the world is changing and we need to train our students in a very different way uh, and in a broader way. That's what global international relations tries to do. And uh, we need a lot more work. Hopefully podcasts like this will be helpful in creating that kind of an awareness. So um, 
we need to tell uh, our audience, uh, the, the students, our uh, practitioners, that uh, broadening the, our sourcing of international relations concepts or diplomatic concepts and ideas is not just a moral thing. It's a good, uh, it's actually necessary uh, because you can't cope with the 21st century with 18th century ideas or 17th century ideas. Professor, this is certainly something that resonates with us here in the UN as we look at rising global problems and uh, organizations, procedures, even set of ideas that clearly need to be upgraded to face those kind of problems. As we as we go towards wrapping up this podcast, I wanted to ask you a final question, which is we talked about we talked about pluralism, deep pluralism, we talk about the global IR as an emerging trend an emerging hopefully force for change. So when we look at that change, if we focus for, for a second on that change that we see emerging now, and on the other hand, we look at the rapidity uh, of uh, how global problems get together and sort of interact and become even bigger problems for facing, facing humankind. I wonder if you could give us your opinion if... Are we going to to be better equipped in the future to tackle these problems because of this emerging and developing better understanding of global IR? And can we be optimistic, after all, about the future of multilateralism? Well, it is hard to be optimistic at this point of time, uh, given all the things that are going on in the world. But I think in the long term, we can be optimistic. Um, a key point I like to make is that uh, widening and broadening not only the academic uh, study of international relations or teaching uh, is good, but also using ideas and practices from different parts of the world and finding a common ground is actually good for peace and multilateralism. So um, I think uh, time has come to widen our horizons, listen to other voices, understand the history of uh, others, not because it's the right thing to do morally, but it's actually necessary. Now, as uh, now we certainly, you know, we may not think globalization that way it was hyped before is going to continue. It was never really um, and as broad-based as people, some people made it out to be. Uh, but certainly the world is closer uh, in terms of communication and transport, at least, uh, than ever before. So we cannot uh, uh, divide the world into uh, like the spheres of influence or at least a geographic uh, uh, entities which don't interact with each other the way the situation was a long time ago. Even the so-called medieval early modern times, the world was actually more linked than we know, uh, we, we, uh, we acknowledge. But still, we are definitely going to live in a uh, world that is uh, connected and that is, uh, if not interdependent in the traditional sense, but certainly uh, problems, uh, certain problems like uh, climate change, pandemics, uh, they can come out of one country, but they can spread very quickly and affect everybody in the world. And uh, no single country can handle them. Uh, no single country, how much powerful, can actually manage climate change or manage uh, pandemics or migration or refugees. So if we acknowledge that, then the uh, need for global international relations become quite evident. So how can we you know, uh, manage global problems or what I call transnational problems in ideas and knowledge coming out of only one country or one region or 
you know, uh, whether it's the United States or Europe. We need to really then look for solutions by looking at uh, not only uh, the contributions of different countries and ideas of different countries, both state and non-state actors, but also what sort of historical legacy that uh, are historical ideas we can derive from their culture and uh, and history through history. Uh, you know, the idea of like a quarantine that was so central to managing COVID is actually came out of uh, the Islamic civilization. Just think about a very simple basic idea of quarantine, uh, in, uh, you know, which was more effective than masks or medicine, at least the early stages of uh, the pandemic, the COVID-19. Uh, COVID-19. Um, a very good example of how ideas, which are very ahead of that time, at that time, uh, we should judge ideas in terms of their time and space and not say something is out of date today. But actually, a lot of ideas came at a time when they were the most advanced ideas of that time. But some ideas retained their uh, validity. I mean, the, the, the number zero was invented in India. It hasn't lost any of its validity in the 21st century, no matter how sophisticated computers we may have. So if you take into account this and really, uh, you know, uh, to the best possible extent, we can really mine this ideas and contributions and bring them together uh, as uh, some sort of a consolidated form and apply them to practical problems, uh, the global challenges in particular, then we actually are much, uh, we should be much better able to face global challenges. Nothing is going to be perfect, uh, but I think uh, ultimately the future of uh, our ability to meet with the challenges of the uh, 21st century is going to depend on drawing on ideas and contributions of multiple civilizations rather than insisting that everything came out of the Europeans or the Americans and we should just uh, follow those uh, ideas and formulas. Well, Professor, I was about to ask you what would be your final thoughts for our audience, but I think this really makes it the wisest point uh, that, that you made and I would like to conclude on that one and I hope that this is portable and memorable for our audience. So, Professor Acharya, thank you so much for being with us on this episode. It was fascinating to follow you around the world and learn so much about the contribution that so many civilizations have made to the development of IR. And now our audience understands better global IR. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you us. very much. Uh, I really appreciate, Francisco, you inviting me to this podcast. And it's a real privilege to be part of the UN archives, uh, especially uh, having Global IR uh, enter into the uh, your, your system of podcasts. I hope uh, this will help to promote the understanding of Global IR. Thank you so much. Thank you.